The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. We're going to hear from Stephen Mendes this morning. He's going to share some of his story of, of coming to know Christ and following Christ. And following that, uh, the scripture is going to be read on, on video, and uh, that is with JP and Angela Cosette. Good morning, everyone. My name is Stephen Mendes, and uh, this is my journey out of legalism. When I was born, my parents were Roman Catholic. When I was eight, my parents became part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. For the next 22 years, I was raised in the beliefs and practices of the Adventist Church. From my younger days, I was immersed with the Adventist culture and beliefs. Adventists believe they are God's special people, the remnant church of Bible prophecy. We were taught that the day is coming soon when everyone who doesn't worship on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, will receive the mark of the beast, which is Sunday worship. There will be a terrible time of trouble for the remnant people, remnant people by um, it's meant the Adventist people, during which we must demonstrate a perfect character without a mediator in the heavenly sanctuary. Finally, Jesus will come and deliver the faithful Sabbath keepers who have demonstrated that his law can be kept perfectly. Over the years, I realized that not all Adventists believe these things, but I believed most of them. And these are the official teachings of the founders. Now, I don't want to make it sound like Jesus was not, not part of the religion I grew up with. My parents were loving Christian parents who taught me and my sister to pray, to read the Bible, and obey and love Jesus. However, religion for me as a young person was Christ plus rules. I remember Sabbath after Sabbath, I would learn stories and lessons of obedience from mainly the Old Testament characters such as Abraham, Moses, Noah, and Elijah. I learned that Jesus was more of my example. Yes, he is my savior, but I must also observe, observe the seven-day Sabbath and abstain from unclean meats, among other things. I never fully understood the ramifications of his of his finished work or Jesus' atonement for my sins. When I was around 20 years, I began to be more involved with the church by taking preaching and teaching assignments. It is at this time that I came across some Adventist authors who had written books about legalism within the Adventist church. I learned from some of these authors about salvation by grace through faith, and that obedience is really a fruit of faith. Now, those books impacted me and made me understand grace better. It was also at this time that I started running a website defending Adventist beliefs and debated with many evangelical Christians. I developed a burden for the Adventist brethren to teach them about grace. 
and for, non, for non-Adventists, brethren, to teach them about the Sabbath and the other unique doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventists. When I was 28, an evangelical Christian, a former Adventist, who I was trying to con- convince him about the Sabbath once again, introduced me to a study on the book of Romans by a pastor named Brian Clark. Pastor Brian was conducting a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study on the book of Romans. All my time in the Adventist church, I was not exposed to a verse-by-verse study of the books of the Bible. We picked verses and chapters here and there, and pastors or teachers rarely had the ability to open the New Testament letters or the epistles such as the book of Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, and teach God's word verse-by-verse. So as I was studying Romans chapter 2, I saw that the people described in Romans chapter 1 was messed up. I mean, after all, uh, it says that they worshipped creature than the creator, among other things. Romans chapter 1, 25. And I thought to myself, well, I am not like the chapter 1 people. I'm really a good person as an Adventist. I've been baptized. I observe all the Ten Commandments. I abstain from unclean meat. I give my money to the church. I've done all those religious stuff, and everything's fine between me and God. But I was shocked in chapter 2 that Paul actually turns around and says, by the way, I am in trouble too, and are destined for the wrath of God. Paul's message in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that we all stand condemned that there is no one who measures up to the standard God requires. Paul summarized that in Romans chapter 3, 23 by saying, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I saw that Romans 2 was teaching that if I were to gain salvation through my good works, then I had to live and obey God's standard every moment, every day, every second in order to have eternal life through law-keeping. But if I blow it just once, in just one moment, in just one second, if I break one one point in law, then what I have coming is God's wrath. I saw that my Bath's standard of perfection, law, sin was set very low versus God's standard of righteousness. As I continued my study, sin, law, righteousness took on a new meaning. I learned that whatever is not done in, in faith is sin. Romans chapter 14, 23. I saw that the violation of a moral code uh, is not uh, what defines sin. I saw that for people in Christ, sin takes on a much broader and a deeper significance than just a violation of a moral code. It dawned on me that the Ten Commandments are not sufficient to define sin under the new covenant. Romans 4.2 said, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. I saw that even Abraham wasn't good enough to be justified by his works, because if he was good enough, he can boast before God, but he cannot. So then if Abraham was not good enough, then I wouldn't then wouldn't it be fair to conclude that I know anyone else is good enough? 
This is the time I realized that what a desperate sinner I was in need, in need of a savior. I realized I'm not good enough just as Abraham was, but God accepted Abraham and declared him righteous through faith apart from works. I understood this faith is not a cheap faith, not, not a simply an intellectual assent, but a faith in God's promises to the degree that you are willing to risk everything for God. There was no confusion for me as I started to read the Bible verse by verse. When James spoke about justification by works, it was clear it was justification by works before man. But Paul was talking about justification by faith before God. Two years later, that is in 2015, after deep study and prayer, I withdrew my membership from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, unlike before, I understand to be justified by faith alone means, for me, that grace requires more than law. Grace requires more than keeping a checklist of laws. It meant as a child of God, I am responsible to live in the spirit and also I'm empowered to live a life in the spirit and grow and become more and more like Jesus. Hi, I'm JP Cassette. And I'm Angela Cassette. Today's reading is Romans 3, 27 through chapter 4, verse 12. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No. On the contrary, by law of faith. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God for Jews only? Is he not also for Gentiles? Yes. For Gentiles too since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then cancel the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him, who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the man God credits righteousness to apart from works. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised, 
so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. Amen. May God bless his word to us this morning. Uh, thank you, Stephen, so very much for sharing uh, with us this morning as well. Let's take time to pray right now. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we would pray to you just like the old hymn said, Beyond the sacred page, we seek thee, Lord. Our spirit longs for you, O living word. To him, who, uh, to him who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be the glory. Amen. Several years ago, Time magazine called uh, Dr. Stanley Hauervoss, who's uh, now in his 80s, uh, the a theologian, the America's best theologian. Well, that sounds pretty impressive. Let's, let's hear something that he had to say around that time. He said, I have come to think that the challenge confronting Christians is not that we do not believe what we say, though that can be a problem, but that what we say we believe does not seem to make any difference for either the church <clears throat> or the world. Maybe you have been thinking as we have been plodding along through chapters 3 and 4 of Romans, and you've thought that the thoughts and teachings and arguments of Paul writing to the church in Rome 2,000 years ago have not a lot of relevance for you and I today who are living it out in Canada in the 21st century. I hope that we can convince you otherwise. Part of the work of reading the Holy Scripture, the text, part of the work of it is, involves removing the, the cultural garb of the Holy Text from its original context, discerning the key teaching that the Holy Spirit gave the author, and then reclothing that Scripture and that text in our present cultural clothing so that we can see the relevance and therefore apply it to our own lives. Last week, we studied chapter 3 of Romans, verses 21 to 26, and the big idea that we were talking about was the righteousness of God, which Paul said has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And we said four things, that, that the righteousness of God is apparent only in Jesus Christ, apart from the law. It's a different kind of righteousness that it is applied to those who by, believe by faith in Christ. No one else need apply, only through faith that it is accomplished through the redemption that Jesus alone could offer, and finally that it was able to justify through his blood atonement all who come to him. And today as we continue in chapters 3 and 4, we're going to see some of these same concepts, except instead of righteousness being the big idea, we're going to be talking about genuine faith. So we're going to be talking about what genuine and justifying faith means Justifying meaning that the kind of faith that can actually make us right with God through dependency on what Christ has done. In other words, we're looking at the fruit of this faith. 
Faith can be a slippery subject because we as creatures can be rather slippery. We're hardwired not to trust in God, but to trust in ourselves. And so therefore, today's scripture, I believe, is the kind of scripture that exposes us. It gives us indicators that will betray us. If we have an immature faith, or if we actually have a false pseudo-faith, this kind of scripture that Paul is writing about in chapter 3 and 4 will expose that. How will it expose it? Well, there's four things today that I want to say. It says that justifying faith or genuine faith in Jesus removes four things from your faith. It will remove, first of all, any boasting in human achievement or righteousness. It will remove all delusions that you have ever been able to earn God's favor. It will remove any insecurities that you have that you are going to be able possibly to sin beyond the grace of God able to forgive. And it will remove all doubts that somehow you are going to be a second-class citizen in the faith fellowship community that are following in the footsteps of Abraham. That sounds like a pretty big morning, a pretty big task today, but these are the things that I'd like us to look at. And if you were to give one word to each of these four things, what kind of people are, are, is God making out of us so that the faith that's, that's building our character and our our peoplehood, what kind of people is he making? Number one, he's making a humble people that have excluded boasting in our lives. We, he's making, secondly, a God-dependent people because we have no delusions of, of us being able to please God. And then thirdly, it's an, a, a people that are bold because what, whatever our sin, we can come boldly before that throne of grace. And then finally, he's making us into a confident people in the grace of God. And so let's take a look at these and uh, beginning we're going to look at uh, how boasting, as Paul says, is excluded. A preacher told a story one day several years ago from his pulpit about a frog that fell into a pail of milk. Now this frog tried every means possible to climb out and jump out of this pail of milk, but he could not do it, could not, nothing to push off of. And so he did what the only thing that he could do, he just kept swimming in circles round and round and round, and as the story goes, he swam so much that he churned this milk into a pad of butter on which he could land or stand, and he leaped out of the pail of milk. Not saying it's a true story. <laughs> Now, the point is, you're asking, is what was the preacher that used that illustration trying to illustrate? Well, here's what he said right after that illustration. He said to his congregation, just keep paddling, keep on working, keep on doing your best, and you'll make it. <laughs> well, that's the gospel according to many people, isn't it? Just keep on working and keep on trying and double down, and you'll make it. And there's no message that could be more contrary to the message of the gospel that Paul is preaching in the book of Romans. He is indeed exposing this kind of gospel. It offends our pride to be told that our best efforts are not good enough. 
But it is the only loving and true message. The idea that we can be made right with God only through faith has huge implications on how we live our lives. But you will find in the world today, you will find that people would rather believe in the lie of works than in the truth of faith. Like the church billboard that said this, we get our salvation the old-fashioned way. We earn it. <laughs> I say it all in jest. It's a sad commentary, though. The truth is no one earns it, isn't it? true. The truth is no one earns it. And so Paul, in Romans 3.27, uh, he goes on to say, boasting in human achievement of righteousness is removed. The word boasting here is the idea of glorying in, depending on. This message of genuine faith removes all of that. Paul uses the word boasting a lot. 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Galatians 6.14, he says, may I never boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. When a person understands the good news of what God has done and places genuine faith in what God has done through Jesus, the boasting is removed. Let, letting go of glorying in our own self-efforts, our own righteousness, our own goodness, our own ability to achieve, even as Stephen was talking about how he was, he was trying to do that so much in his own life earlier. And it will lead us to this glad dependency on what God has done and a, a boldness before his throne of grace. So true faith means that, that it, instead of like pulling teeth, it should be more that we gladly lay down all of our efforts and say, well, Jesus, what you did is absolutely sufficient, and I turn to you. The folly of holding up our puny efforts to an almighty God who is pure and holy and righteous is just vain and silly when we understand it, although we try. And so we're not worried also about what others think. We're not worried about trying to impress others with a strong life, with a good life, with a pure testimony, with a image management, because we know that God has accepted us through his Son. It was said of Charles Spurgeon that one day someone who wanted to write his biography came to him, and Charles Spurgeon is quoted to have said, um, You may write my life across the sky, for I have nothing to conceal. Not, not, not saying he lived a perfect life at all. He just knew so much that the grace of God had received him through the merit of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want to go on to talk about that genuine faith in Jesus also removes all delusions of ever being able to earn his favor or please him by any other means. And to teach this lesson, what does Paul do? He brings in that Old Testament character, Abraham. And uh, it's an interesting thing because, as we're going to see a little later on in the message, this is a brilliant play by Paul because the church in Rome was filled with Jewish and Gentile believers who were in conflict with each other, surrounding the law, surrounding the commandments, and Paul raised Abraham because both the Gentile and the Jew pointed back to Abraham as their father. Of faith. Let's see why and how later on in the text. Now for many, Abraham in the first century was a, an example of a man who was justified before God because he lived a good, a good life and his works 
was sufficient, just like Stephen was sharing in his testimony. And the rabbis actually taught, for example, in an apocryphal book called The Prayer of Manasseh, actually taught that Abraham no need had no need of repentance. They took passages like Genesis 26, 5, where it says, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And they would twist that to say that he lived a perfect life. And so Paul had to correct some of the misunderstanding around Abraham being righteous enough by works. And he does so by quoting from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, the passage that you've heard already this morning. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this is the scripture that Paul shares in, in Romans chapter 4. Now what did God promise to do for Abraham? He promised to make Abraham into a great nation, Genesis chapter 12. He promised that through Abraham, all nations on earth would be blessed through him. And Abraham was now over 80 years old in Genesis 15. He is over 80 years old. His wife Sarah is barren. And yet it says in the scripture that he believed God, that he would still bear a son, have this chance to become the father of many nations, that he would still be that father of the child of promise through his wife Sarah. And so it says in the scripture, he, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Didn't do anything, and anything he had done up until that time is not credited as anything for righteousness' sake. It says that his faith, his belief in God and his promise was all that it was take to count righteousness. Now this word counted is interesting. You'll notice in chapter 4 that it's used 11 different times. Counted credited, reckoned. Just like money can be credited to a different account, that's the way is being used here. God is crediting righteousness to this bankrupt account of a human being who is a sinner before him. That's what he does for us, and that's what he did for Abraham, undeserving as he was. The gift of grace was credited to Abraham's account. In Romans chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. I doubt that if any of you receive your paycheck deposited in your bank account at the end of the month, you write your employer thanking them for paying you this month. You don't do that. Why don't you do that? Well, you don't do it because you earned that wage. You deserve that wage. But when it comes to righteousness before God, you don't want what you deserve. And there's no amount of your working that could earn it. And there's no amount of a long enough time, hard enough work, good enough life that could ever pay for your sin or earn your salvation. As I said last week, your righteousness and my righteousness, the righteousness that comes by the law, it's a different league altogether than the righteousness of God. We must not think either that somehow what Abraham did was he made a bargain with God. We must not think that somehow Abraham swapped with God, somehow that, that there was this allegiance given, that Abraham said, listen what, I'll tell you what, if you forgive me, I'll, I'll be yours, I'll, I'll serve you, I'll I'll lead all my family toward you. No, no, no. That wasn't it. That would turn this faith into work again. It's not that way. There was no bartering. There was no appeasement. 
Faith is not something you work for to appease the wrath of God. No, it's a free gift. And I don't know if we can improve on the acronym, the acronym, faith, forsaking all, I trust him. I don't know if we can improve on that. That's what it is. There's nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And so that's the second point, is this removal, removal of delusions, of ever being able to earn God's favor. Thirdly, genuine and justifying faith removes any insecurity of sinning or being able to sin to the point of rejecting, of being rejected by God or falling outside of his blessing. Now, this is going to push some of you. This is going to test some of you as to whether you really understand and believe in the grace of God. The question that this is answering here as Paul raises the illustration of David's life, the question that this is answering is this. Is the human capacity to sin greater than God's capacity to forgive sinners by grace? I want you to take that into yourself and answer it for yourself. Do you believe that the human capacity to sin is greater than God's capacity to forgive? Well, we're going to be pushed on that in a moment here. To demonstrate the truth, Paul raises another Old Testament hero. This time it's David. And in verses 6 to 8 it says this, For just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, there's the same word, righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now that may just sound like a lovely little blessing, a little verse that just rolls off the tongue until you take a closer look at the context And if we slow down, we think about who spoke it, who wrote it, and possibly even when did they write it. Paul is quoting David in Psalm 32. This is not Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is prefaced with the the statement that this is the psalm he wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery. But whether Psalm 32 was written before or after that event, David's sin with Bathsheba event, he's writing to the Christians in Rome who knew David. He's writing in the first century to the Christians, and when you mention David to them, yeah, they think about King, they think about the shepherd boy, they think about Goliath, they think about the Psalms, but you know what? They think about about Bathsheba. They think about Uriah. And they would have a hard time not thinking about his royal mess-ups. How in one foul swoop, he broke three of the Ten Commandments. He coveted another man's wife, committed adultery with her, and to cover up her pregnancy, had her husband killed on the front lines of battle. In the Old Testament law, folks, there was no provision for this. Do you know what the penalty was for these things? It was death. Did David die? No. What's God teaching us here? Well, listen to Psalm 32 for a moment. Psalm 32, verse 5. 
David writing. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I confessed my transgression, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, he says to God. Therefore, let everyone who is godly call out to you. (laughs) I don't know. I can't think of an incident in David's life that would cause him to say this as much as that incident with Bathsheba, but we don't need to go there. The point is that he's talking about David here. He's quoting David, and he's pushing the, the fact of faith, genuine faith, defies that any sinner could be beyond the blessed reach of God's capacity to forgive. (laughs) This is amazing. This is amazing. I want to ask you a couple of questions. And you just take these questions right into your inner spirit and answer them there. Do you know the experience of inner groaning that comes from the sin that you've committed and are trying to cover up rather than confess? Do you know that inner groaning, that breaking down of the bones inside of you? Have you experienced also the incredible peace that comes when you finally do confess those wrongs to God or to another human being? And you are forgiven. Oh, what relief. Do you know that experience? Let me ask you another question. Do do you have trouble believing that God can or will forgive your particular sin because you feel that your sin is especially grievous to God because of the nature of your sin, because the quantity or quality of your sin? Do you feel that you are living under a cloud of guilt and shame because your sin or your sins are known only to you? And you feel that if you ever had shared it with anybody, if others knew about you what you know about you, that they would surely reject you. And you're stuck right there. You're stuck at not being able to forgive yourself. And you have somehow twisted, mangled, cancerously injected into your theology this core belief, this strange idea that somehow you need to pay for that thing, that stuff. Maybe the way you pay is not in one foul swoop. It's just a life of misery somehow. Hang on to the guilt. Hang on to the shame. Folks, I want to tell you all, there is really good news. There is really, really good news. And the good news is that no person, no human being, could ever have the capacity to sin beyond what God is able to forgive. Through his son, Jesus Christ. What kind of statement would that be about the pure son of God and the sacrifice he gave on the cross if any sinner could outsin God's grace? In spite of your sins, you need to know the good news is that genuine faith, when it grows there, genuine faith in you, will remove all insecurities that you somehow 
are going to be rejected by God. God has forgiven you in Christ if you've got a genuine faith in what Jesus did. It doesn't depend on your performance. As we've said in the past, he, he grades us on the cross of Christ, not on the curve of our performance. Many of you know uh, about the woman that married Billy Graham, Ruth Bell Graham. She was driving one day through a construction zone on a highway. And uh, at the end of this long construction zone, she came to a sign that said, End of construction. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. Hey, Ruth Graham died in 2007, but before she died, she told her husband and her children what she wanted on her gravestone. Do you want to guess what she put on her gravestone? She said, I don't know if you can see it in there, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. You and I could put that on our gravestone, couldn't we? But you know something? There is no one more patient with you than God. There is no one who loves you more than God. There's no one who can forgive and wants to forgive you more than God. And all that he wants, all that he's saying is, you must trust completely in what I did because I cannot accept any of your payment. I don't know if you notice on, on the slide, but there's, a, there's a, a Chinese character on her gravestone as well. <clears throat> it's because she had grown up as a missionary kid in China. <clears throat> when I, when I kind of looked into that, it, it, I realized that it's two characters, actually, one on top of the other. And uh, it's the one that is on top is, is the character for Lamb, and the one underneath it is the character for the self, me, you, us. And, the, and, the, and this character, I'm told in Chinese, means righteousness. What is righteousness? It is the lamb covering you and I, the sinner. What a beautiful picture. That's what Jesus Christ has done. And in faith, what I'm doing, in genuine faith, I'm simply leaving all that stuff behind that thinks that I can do enough to please God, and I'm just going to come under Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world completely. I'm going to depend on him. Hallelujah. What a good God. Do you know, when I, when I read Psalm 32, I believe that David wrote it boldly, knowing the kind of sinner he was and believing that no sin could ever place him outside of the mercy and kindness of his God. And so he could say, literally, blessed are those whose lawless deeds, deeds like having someone killed, deeds like committing adultery, deeds like coveting, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. David experienced that. And then the third or fourth point that I want to share is that genuine justifying faith, according to Paul in Romans 4, removes all doubts of ever thinking that you're going to be accepted in the faith community that isn't following after the footsteps of faith in Abraham. Now look at, look at verse 9. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 9, there's a question. 
Is this blessing that David's writing about, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles? The answer given in verse 10, how then was it counted to Abraham? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And the answer, of course, is that it was before Abraham was circumcised that he was counted righteous in God's sight. We know that because in Genesis 15, he was counted righteous, and he wasn't circumcised for at least 14 years later when in Genesis 17, verse 24, it says that he was circumcised in the flesh. Now, what's the point? Well, the point is is that when God credited his righteousness to Abraham's account, he wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile. Abraham was given the righteousness of God as a Gentile. Now, this would have landed like a bomb in the church in Rome. (laughs) This would have been like, you know, what? What? You mean Abraham's our father too? The Gentiles would have thought. Yeah, yeah, he was credited righteousness before he was circumcised. There were no Jews. Oh. And and this would have been like, hey, you got to get along. Folks in Rome, church, you got to get along. He's saying in this scripture, basically, that the seal then, the seal, verse 11, the sign of circumcision as a seal was just talking about what was already done. You know, the seal idea? Uh, they got a ring or some stamp and, and they're hot wax on the letter and you go, and it's sealing. The, what's the seal do? The seal simply says that, that, hey, I have the authority to say that what's in this letter is the real deal. I wrote that. It's true. The seal with nothing in the letter doesn't mean anything. The seal of circumcision, not having the heart of belief, righteousness of God, doesn't mean anything. That's why Paul said to the Jews earlier in Romans, he says, you know, circumcision is nothing unless it's of the heart in the spirit. So what was it that was uniting the church in Rome? The believers in Rome, were they, were they united based on ethnicity? No. Were they united based on religious background? No. Some were pagan, some were Jewish, Judaism. Were they, were they united based on the sign of circumcision? No. The thing that united the church in Rome is the th- same thing that unites us. White Ridge Baptist Church in Winnipeg, 2,000 years later, it's faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. That's what unites us. Amen. We make a big deal of Jesus, don't we? Can I hear an amen? (laughs) We make a big deal of Jesus. Amen. Well, I hope, I hope you're not lost. I hope you don't get lost in Abraham and circumcision and all these things. It, it's easy to get lost in Romans 3 and 4. But I just want to say a couple things before we conclude. I want to say, first of all, does your faith have substance? I want to ask you, does your faith have substance? Is it a genuine faith or is it an empty faith? Does your faith have the substance of knowing that you've got nothing mixed in there of self? It's it's completely trusting in God. It's it's a faith that is not kind of barometer reading of the outward things that are, you know, obeying the Sabbath or being baptized or being a church member, reading your Bible every day and praying. No, no, no. These things can be very, very transactional. 
The transactional faith is not a transformational faith. The transactional faith is the faith that Cain had. Remember Cain in the Bible? He brought his sacrifice to God. Abel, his brother, brought the sacrifice. Cain's was rejected. Abel's was accepted. Cain said, hey, I did my part. God, you do yours. That's transaction. How many transactions did you do this past week? I bet you did dozens. Paid your insurance, filled up the tank of gas. And you bring that to your faith in God. God, God's not a transactional God. He says, I don't need what you have to offer. Just take what I have to offer and be glad and receive it with joy. And then stand on it and live in it. Transformational faith. The prodigal son's older brother was another transactional faith guy. Figured he'd served his father the whole time and now, you know, this whole idea of faith really pushes us, this genuine faith message. I read about a survey that was done several years ago and in the survey, I think it was done in the United States, but in the survey, uh, people were asked what, what words they wanted to hear more than any other words. Okay, so, so just think about that. What words would you like to hear more than any other words? Can you guess what the first one was? I love you. <laughs> That's, that was the first one. I love you was the first thing that people wanted to hear. The second one was, I forgive you. Interesting, I forgive you. The third one, the third one is supper's ready. <laughs> Someone was reflecting on these three in the survey and they said, this is a great demonstration of the gospel because God says, I love you and God says, I really want to forgive you. Would you come to my son? And then he says, supper's almost ready. I'm preparing my banquet table. I have a place for you. Would you take it? Will you believe completely in my son? Let's pray. Lord our God, we, we stand in awe of you. We, we marvel at your grace. We, we personally experience the shame of sin and we personally come to understand as chief of sinners the incredible grace and Lord it is, it is a challenge for our faith to mature into that place of being genuine and not empty where we absolutely fully lean on Jesus name and not trust in ourselves. Lord, we thank you for this message. We do pray, we pray, would you take it into our hearts where it will root and grow and bear fruit. In Jesus' name.